This episode is sponsored by Auxilio Partners, providing the business management and technology expertise your church needs. Find out more at auxilio.partners/5points. Welcome to the Five Points Church Planning Podcast. We are so thrilled that you are listening and we are thankful that you are taking the time to share the word about this podcast. We are grateful for each and every one of you. We have a special guest today. It's Dr. Ligon Duncan. He is the chancellor and he is the CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary. And he's the president also of the Jackson campus. He wears a lot of hats. He's also a systematic theology professor, and he is a wealth of pastoral information. We are so glad, Ligon, that you could join us. I'm thrilled to be here with you, Hunter. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to see Josh again as well. So Josh and I were both students, both graduates of RTS. I would I think it's safe to say Josh and I both barely graduated. That's why we're church planners <laughs> and not systematic theologians. But we are so thankful for RTS. I went to this campus in Orlando and then finished my last semester in Jackson. And Josh also went to Jackson. And so we have been blessed by this institution. It's been a big part of our pastoral ministry, and it's been a part of who we are as church planners in the PCA. I wanted to share this with our audience before we got into the questions that we have this morning for Dr. Duncan. When I was going for ordination in our denomination, one of the great uh, teachers at RTS, Dr. Derek Thomas, was my credentials committee chairman. Now, I had not had Dr. Thomas as a, as a seminary professor. He was in Jackson, and I had all my systematology classes in Orlando. And so I was nervous. I was very reluctant about the process, and he was very kind and very welcoming. He took me to breakfast one morning and told me what to expect and what I needed to do and what I needed to study, and he really made the process very open to me and, and helped me become an ordained minister in the PCA. And so we we had our written exams, our oral exams. When the oral exams were over, he pulled me and a couple of other guys aside, and he said, listen, you guys did well. You did great. I'm thankful for you. So when you go to presbytery and you have your floor exams, I'm not going to ask you anything new. In fact, you guys did so well, I'm really going to throw you some softball questions and you'll be fine. And so don't stress out, don't study too hard, maybe review your notes, but you're ready to go. I'm confident that the Lord is calling you to ordain ministry. Well, two months later, I show up for presbytery. And I met in the parking lot by Reverend Philip Palmer Tree. He's a pastor in Mississippi, and he has uh, this, this look on his face. I knew something wasn't right. And he said, Dr. Thomas's mother-in-law has passed away. And she, they have gone to be with family and to attend the service. And, but your ordination is going to go forward. And so we go to Presbytery, and we have our floor exams. I guess instructions were not given about what to do. I guess Dr. Thomas did not leave the questions that were supposed to be asked. So Philip just turned it over to the presbytery to ask questions. And it was, it was okay. And then they came to history and they said, Ligon, you're here. Why don't you handle the history? I broke out into a sweat like 
like you cannot possibly <laughs> imagine. I could not believe that they were they were turning me over to a a theologian whose early church history is his thing. And I believe her first question was something along the lines of who was Augustine's dog's veterinarian. It was the hardest question <laughs> that I have ever gotten in symphony um... in in almost in life and and you continued down that path and i i'm like so this is going to be the end of me i'm not going to be ordained i'm going to be a non-denominational pastor somewhere that it doesn't require ordination and i realized at some point that you were playing with us a little bit and the crowd the pastors and the ruling elders and teaching elders who were gathered there they laugh and it dawned on me they don't know this either. They don't know the answers <laughs> to these questions either. And that's when I realized I, I think I was going to make it. And ultimately I did. But you gave me one of the great scares of my life. I wanted you I, to know that. I'm sorry, Hunter. I have, I, you know, I have absolutely no recollection <laughs> whatsoever. I, it's always is, when you're on the receiving end that you remember those things. Uh, I had the, I've had a couple of experiences like that. Uh, in my life, my my uh, my longtime friend, and you'll know him from the PCA, David Sinclair, mm -hmm. was the chairman of my uh, ordination uh, exam, and and he threw me some some curveballs uh, uh, during that exam, and uh, and and then I, I remember when I was getting ready for my doctoral viva, and I I went to my 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 doctor father, my first uh, reader, and said, now you know tomorrow will I get there and meet you and go into the faculty sonatas. And he said, oh, well, I won't be there. And, and I, I broke out in a cold sweat when I realized my own supervisor was not going to be there. He said, oh, no, you, the, the supervisor isn't allowed to come to the Viva unless you make a special request. I had no idea. So I was going into <laughs> that room by myself with other people that had not been a part of uh, the, the process at that point. So I, I think we always remember those things when we're on the receiving end. But those that administer these things forget them quickly. So. Yes, yes, well, this is I, true. I, I think on the flip side of that, so that we, our only example of uh, our experience on this podcast is not a Christian hazing example uh, or ministerial <laughs> hazing example. Uh, I, I would say when I was going through the ordination process, uh, you know, I had a hiccup at the front part of it. Uh, I was coming from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, had just become uh, fully Presbyterian. I was slowly making the shift long before that, became full circle, came to Jackson, had no idea the gauntlet that I had to run and was really naive to the process. Kind of came in a, a little ignorant to the credentials committee meetings, those kind of things, which if you're not from the PCA, the process for nation goes through a committee of our presbytery. And and they just wanted me to do some further work. And they they asked me actually, because I was at first pres at the time working at Christian Medical and Dental Association as an in, you know campus intern there uh and and you allowed me to work kind of close at hand at first pres as well which was i was grateful for they had me come to you to, to kind of sit through some things my wife and i both and uh honestly what was a very intimidating process for us with so many new hurdles to jump and kind of overwhelming uh we walked in your office frankly terrified i don't know why people are terrified of people but my wife mostly because she had this would be her first foray into it and uh it was one of the the warmest uh, most encouraging um helpful um times uh, for my wife and i both uh, in preparation for ministry and 
going through a difficult season during that time, kind of questioning some things. You encouraged us, you reassured her, and she's always felt very in, indebted to you for that and fond of you for that. And, and, and I have as well, uh, just grateful for it. So two sides of the same coin, just so you don't only, only have good. to hear the hazing example. <laughs> it's good. Well, look, that's good for all of us to, to remember, no matter where we're serving, sometimes the position that we hold represents something that does intimidate people. The, the warmth of our response, the evidence of our personal care can help break the ice, can help make what would otherwise be a little bit of a daunting setting a much more comfortable setting. That's good for all of us to remember. I've so yep. appreciated yep. Uh, your ministry over the years and felt it a privilege to be a part of your life. This is a church planning podcast, and we've mentioned time again that we are a part of the Reformed tradition and that our theology is creedal, is confessional. Uh, it stems from the Protestant Reformation, and that informs who we are and what we do and how we plant churches. So we thought Dr. Duncan would be a, a great person to have on this podcast to help us think through the dynamics of planting, and in particular, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so I'll go ahead and toss you our first question regarding this. Over the years, as a pastor, you were the pastor of First Presbyterian Jackson when I arrived on the scene, and uh, under your ministry, First Pres supported me in church planting and starting a church in the Jackson area. You are a pastor first and foremost. How has the confession benefited your ministry over the years? Well, there are a lot of answers to that question, Hunter. As a, as a Presbyterian minister, I recognize that though my fellow pastors and my elders subscribe to and understand in some measure the theology of the Westminster Confession, many, many people in my congregation do not. You know, mm -hmm. I, think, I think a lot of people know that I pastored First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, which mm -hmm. is a historic Presbyterian congregation, and they assume that everybody at First Presbyterian believed the same thing that I did, mm. and they would be gravely mistaken <laughs> uh, if, they, if they thought that. I, you know, when, when I came to First Presbyterian Church, I was following a, a legendary PCA minister that you and I, all of us on this call, know and, and love dearly. He's home with the Lord now, James McKenzie Baird. Jim Baird, the vice chairman of the committee that created the PCA, a man that it spent his life investing himself in young men, both for life and service, but also for, for ministry. A dear friend of Bill Whitworth, who means so much to you, Hunter. And so I was following a legend. But I, I remember Jim in, in choir's class would, would stress to the people that were joining First Presbyterian Church, that in the in the Presbyterian Church in America, we don't require that you as a member subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. We ask mm -hmm. you five questions. Uh, do you acknowledge yourself a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope save uh, for his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest on him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve in promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you promise to submit yourself to the govern, government and discipline of the church and to 
study its purity and peace. And now will you commit yourself to the work and worship of the church? You know, those are the things that we ask members of a Presbyterian church in America congregation. So they do not all know anything about the Westminster Confession of Faith or uh, and, and perhaps agree with parts mm-hmm. of it. I mean, I, I, I don't know what you guys have found, but I, commonly I have people that come to my church and other PCA churches and they're, they struggle with the idea of predestination and they struggle with the idea of infant baptism. And then I'm sure there are lots of other things too, Mm -hmm. but those are very, very common things that I find in, in sort of new member classes that people Mm -hmm. ask questions about. So how, how does the Westminster Confession of Faith inform me in that kind of a context? Well, one is it assures me as I preach and teach that I am not, I'm not making this stuff up as I go along, Mm -hmm. right? I, I, I am, there is a great cloud of witnesses uh, that goes back almost 400 years now. And the Westminster Confession is generally viewed as the culminating point of the entire Reformed confessional age. In other words, Reformed Christians mm-hmm. started writing confessions of faith almost immediately in the early days of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, which is 500 years ago. So almost mm-hmm. 500 years ago, they started writing confessions of faith for churches to basically say, look, we as Protestant Christians believe that the Bible teaches this about this. And, mm. and they collected a variety of topics and, and, and tried to expound what they as Protestant Christians believe that the Bible taught. And that was done for about 100 years. And, and the Westminster Confession was written in the 1640s after about 100 years of theological reflection. And so what the Confession does is it actually summarizes 1,500 years of Christian thought mm-hmm. and 100 years of Reformed Protestant thought on what the Bible teaches about it basically does it under 33 topic settings, but if you actually number it out in sections, it makes about 170 discrete theological assertions. Mm-hmm. But it's doing that not like willy-nilly, but out of 100 years of Protestants thinking about what the Bible teaches, mm-hmm. and then 1,500 years of what the whole church had thought about what the Bible teaches. Does that help me? Oh, man, Hunter, it helps me. I, yeah. You know, I come away just like you do from passages saying, I am not sure I understand everything that that passage is teaching, but I am certain that that passage is teaching this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm going to preach on. I'm going to preach on what I know. And it helps me to have other Christians who have said, yep, that's what that passage teaches. So that I don't feel like I'm getting ready to mislead people with some crazy quirky idea that I've come up with that nobody else has ever come up with. So that mm-hmm. that's one one way that it helps me. It helps me. Uh, it helps me in majoring on the majors. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, we, we've all met friends who have their own unique theory that ninety nine point seven percent of people in the history of the world have never believed, and they are <laughs> so locked in on that thing, and they want to talk about it all the time. Well, I want to talk about the main things, and the confession helps me talk about the main things. And the other thing is that the, the confession was written, though, though there were some unbelievably impressive theologians 
at the Westminster Assembly. People like Anthony Burgess, oh my, Anthony Burgess was a, I mean, he was a brainiac. Almost all of these guys were educated at, at, at Cambridge or Oxford or some other very impressive institution, but they were all pastors. And so they looked at everything from the standpoint of what do we, how do we want this truth to impact the life of the con- uh, congregation? Mm-hmm. And that helps me because that's as a pastor or a church planner, what you're wanting to do is bring biblical truth to bear on the lives of people so that they follow Jesus and that they live the Christian life better. And these are, these are past, that's what they were thinking about. How, how, do, how do we craft something so that Christians in Britain in the 17th century can love and trust Jesus and live the Christian life better? So for all those reasons and a hundred more, I find the Westminster Confession very, very helpful to me as I pursue pastoral ministry. I do a newsletter with our congregation once a week, and you were just saying that the point where you want to to focus on the main things. I'm, I find in a church planning situation in a region of the country where I serve that doesn't really understand reform doctrine, doesn't really, there's not a whole <laughs> lot of exposure to reform doctrine, to the Presbyterian church in general. We're a, we're a different breed in this area. And being a church plant, there's, I find that I'm, I'm always kind of fighting for more kind of Christian education moments or time in the, in, in the, in the ministry in this early stage of church planning that we're in. And one of the things I took up to do trying to focus on those main things was just started with the shorter catechism. And each week I, I focus on one or a couple of those brief summaries of those, um, the statements themselves can, you know, can stand alone, but uh, we're written for that reason. But to, to give them some explanation, understanding has been, uh, I think, increasingly helpful to to give, put some things before our people to help shape some things and, and really focus on, on those main things and helpful to hear you uh, outline some of those. Absolutely. And look, the shorter catechism is a great tool. And I've, I've used that as well. But even think about the confession, if, you know, mm-hmm. it starts with the Bible. Then it goes to God in the Trinity. Then it deals with the sovereignty of God. Then it deals with creation and providence, the fall and sin, the covenants, and Jesus. Well, whoa, talk about going eight for eight. I mean, every (laughs) single person in our churches, we want them to understand those things. So the catechisms, man, yes, we we really try to use especially the shorter catechism and the children's Mm -hmm. catechism, which was written by a Presbyterian minister back in the 19th century. But uh, but the confession, too, is a real mm-hmm. help to us in just sort of zeroing us in on yeah. things that we have got to make sure that folks understand. Well, I guess in light of that, I guess the next question we would have is that I, I got a couple of bookshelves in, in my library full of books regarding or speaking to the issue of the, the changing nature of our culture, how to think through this secular age and, and what we're dealing with. And as we, we think about the truths that we are trying to hold forth to our congregations, the way that we do ministry, the way that we do it. And in light of our, our changing culture and the, the church planters task uniquely, um, maybe somewhat different than the established church pastor's role, but moving into places and spaces uh, like, for instance, Lafayette that has no PCA presence whatsoever, no Presbyterian um, yeah. A very, very, very nominal um, reformed presence uh, here. 
how does the how does the confession inform and encourage that uh, that church planting process for us? How do we how can it help encourage that process? How do we use that in, in the context of church planting? Well, uh, figuring out your context is vital for any kind of ministry, whether whether you're planning a church or whether you're doing revitalization or whether you're pastoring a healthy church, you you better spend some time figuring out your context. The, the Westminster Assembly understood that too. They understood that they were not doing theology in a vacuum. They had actually very explicit contextual and cultural goals for uh, the work that they were doing at the Westminster Assembly. Their assignment was actually couched in those terms with specific goals that they were seeking to achieve by the production of the theological documents that they were producing, and every every minister, you know, has has to think through what what is it exactly that I'm trying to do here. And, and let me just say, when I started ministry, Josh and Hunter, I probably wasn't thinking about that as clearly as I should have. Frankly, I think your generation has probably done a better uh, better job of that than my generation did because we were often assuming our cultural situation because there had been more stability. Mm. You have been reared in a time of much more rapid and dramatic cultural change than I was up to that point. And you've done ministry in a time of more fluctuation than I was aware of and experiencing in the earlier part of my ministry. So it was actually campus ministers and church planners saying to me as a young pastor, I remember sitting around a table at Shoney's in Jackson with a group of campus ministers and church planners who said to me as a young pastor, what's your philosophy of ministry? This thing flashed across my eyes <laughs> and, I, and I started thinking, well, what is my, what is my philosophy of ministry? And they, they, were, they were coming out, I mean, some of them were coming out of a Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, background. And if, if you know, one of the informal mottos of, of RUF is reaching students for Christ, equipping students to serve. And if you think about those two things, it's really justification and sanctification. It's really, how is a person declared right with God? How does a person get right with God? That's through trusting on Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. That results in justification. And then sanctification, how do you live the Christian life better? How do you equip people to serve in the rest of life? And so he was all about, hey, man, justification, sanctification, that's my grid that I look through everything in ministry. That conversation actually sparked what I've been doing for the rest of my life is just asking myself, what am I trying to do here? Mm -hmm. And your answer to that question needs to be both biblically rooted. It needs to derive, your your theology of ministry needs to come out of the scriptures, not out of the culture, but out of the scriptures. And then it needs to be theologically honed in accordance with those anchoring truths of the scriptures, but then it needs to be wise to the cultural setting you're walking into. It's got to understand the culture that you're plopped down in because we're not just engaging with the culture. The culture is in us, and we are in the culture. And, and we need to be aware of the cultural assumptions that we're bringing, bringing as part of our 
thinking about any mm. given thing. You need to be self-aware. I mean, I think there's a lot of stress now in our day and age about pastors being self-aware. And, uh, and that's true, but you also have to be culturally self-aware. Mm. Uh, you, have to, you have to be aware of the assumptions that you're bringing to the task, and then you need to be aware of your cultural context. So let me just give you one, one obvious expression of that in my early experience. I had been reared in the Presbyterian Church of America, which is a conservative, Bible-believing, Presbyterian Reformed denomination. I was born in 1960. The PCA came into being in 1973. My church was one of the original churches in the PCA. The people that populated my churches and the leadership were not from the leading people in the culture in Greenville, South Carolina. Now, they, they were not the lower classes or marginal to the society, but they were not the country club, the chamber of commerce, the city council. They were not the engine drivers of the culture in Greenville, South Carolina. In fact, there was the congregation was, there was some blue collar. There had been some men of significant means and cultural influence in the congregation, but that was really not that, if you, if you, if you had described the session at Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina, you would not have said, oh man, these are the movers and shakers <laughs> of Greenville, South Carolina. You just would not have said that. Now, when I came to Jackson and stood up as a 35-year-old you know, greenhorn pastor in front of the 70 ruling elders of First <laughs> Presbyterian Church in Jackson, I realized these are not only the people that are running Jackson, Mississippi, <laughs> these people are running the state of Mississippi. As a pastor, you, you better be aware of that when, yeah. when you go into a particular setting. It yeah. changes the way you have to go about certain things. And so if you're in Louisiana, mm. you, you better know something about about the Catholic Church in, mm -hmm. in Louisiana and the family systems of Louisiana and the cultural expectations of, of Louisiana. Mm -hmm. not, not because you're just going to assent to that or accommodate yourself to that or give yourself up, but you, but you better understand it. In, in Mississippi, the coastal culture is different from the Delta culture, is different from the Pinelands culture is different from the capital city culture. Mm -hmm. And if you're pastoring in any one of those four regions of Mississippi, you better understand that. It's different. People in the other parts of Mississippi refer to the Coastians. Mm -hmm. uh, of, uh, and and it's, a it's a different cultural mix. And, and there's, by the way, there's a lot of Catholicism on, uh, in, in the coastal culture in, in, in Mississippi, just like you would find uh, in places in, in Louisiana. So as, as a pastor, you do want to be aware of that. And one of the things I've, I've tried to do at RTS is help students start thinking about that earlier. I actually added a systematic theology course to our curriculum uh, just a few years ago called Christ, Culture, and Contextualization, so that students are deliberately and self-consciously and theologically thinking that through before they go out on the field and have to do it all on their own. You know, I want them working with the watchful eye of a pastoral theologian through questions of culture and context. 
because the first the first rule of contextualization is for you to understand that you do have a context <laughs> and, yeah. and, and yeah. you you've got to understand that context because it sets certain parameters of what's easier to do what's harder to do and what is nigh unto impossible to do i, I tell people that my part of my philosophy of of ministry i derive from dirty harry uh, you guys are you guys are too young to remember Clint Eastwood in the Dirty Harry series, but one of his famous sayings was, "A man's got to know his limitations," mm. and uh, that that's part of my philosophy of ministry is you got to know your limitations, and those yeah. limitations not only have to do with you, they have to do with what is possible in your particular congregational setting. Yeah. So yeah. I think the more we think about that explicitly. Uh, the more it will help us do a good job when we go into a particular setting. So, Ligon, a significant number of people in our audience are church planners or they're pastors who are in the throes of revitalization work. And you come to the confession and you lean so heavily upon it for your theological thinking to guide your teaching and preaching. But what encouragement does the confession offer for planters in terms of outreach and evangelism, those that are seeking to build the church in, in, in a more immediate state, I guess you would say, because all pastors are seeking to build the church. Yeah. What aid, what comfort does the confession offer to planters and those in revitalization work? Well, I mean, I, I, again, you, you don't have time for me to tell all the ways. So let, me, <laughs> let, me, let me give you one. I have had the conversation I'm about to share with you a thousand times with pastors and church planners over the last decade or so, that they are finding that our, our culture itself has created an environment in which people are more skeptical about the truth claims of Christ more skittish about the church. They're very cynical about the church. If, you, if you've seen Ryan Burge's latest numbers, every single institution in our culture has less confidence from the population, except for the military. Mm -hmm. Every single institution, education, government, medicine, law, I can go down the whole list, colleges and universities, everything's down except the military. And that means that we have a very, there's a cynicism that's that's inbred in the in the culture. Part of that is just watching scandal after scandal after scandal in in every yeah. area of authority in our culture, and there is a greater inbred resistance to the ministry of the gospel in our culture at this moment. And and people, you have people coming up with crazy ideas about what you need to do to to minister in that kind of a setting. So one of the ways that the confession encourages you there is that, for instance, in chapter six, is it lets you know that our ministry has always been the ministry of resurrection, not just the ministry of a physician. We're, we're not just out there trying to heal people. We're trying to raise dead people from the dead. And that means that as I talk to pastors who say, gosh, it takes a lot longer now. I'm finding for somebody to be to get to the point to come to a profession of faith in Christ, to be willing to unite with the church. They've got to be around us a long time. You've got to spend yeah. a long I'm I'm not seeing as many people walk in the door and 
say, wow, I'm a, I'm a Christian now, pastor. I'm seeing that take a lot, lot longer. It can be very discouraging to pastors how slow that process can be, how many people come a long way down that process and then they turn back and go away and, and say, friends, our ministry has always been the ministry of the resurrection of the dead. This has never been easy. It's always been beyond our possibility. We may have been in the Ozzie and Harriet, Harriet and Eisenhower years fooled into thinking that this was something other than a ministry of resurrection of the dead. But we were fooled then because we've always been about Ephesians chapter two. You were dead in mm -hmm. trespasses and sins, but you were made alive through Jesus Christ. That's always been our ministry. We're more palpably aware of that in our culture. And that's a good right. thing. What does it do? It keeps us on our knees because I wish that I could gather a group of people and just go, believe, 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 believe. And they'd all believe in Christ and trust in him. I do not have the power to do that. Mm -hmm. I do not have the power to do that. I have to speak the words of God into thin air and let the Holy Spirit do his work. So it's, it's good for pastors to realize I'm in the same boat with Paul. I'm in the same boat with Augustine. I'm in the same boat with, with Calvin. I'm in the same boat with John Bunyan. I'm in the same boat with Charles Spurgeon. I'm in a different cultural setting. Yes, it, it really does look like, especially in the West, that we're entering a post-Christendom era. It really does look like you know, we're going to be in something that looks something like pre-Nicene Christianity. Hey, the gospel worked in pre-Nicene Christianity too. And, uh, and, and the demands uh, of, of resurrection of the dead are no different now than they were then. It's, it's good for us to be reminded of that. And the confession will remind us of some of those things which I think can encourage discouraged pastors because it, it is a hard slog. I mean, I, I, I can remember in the 60s as a single digit age young boy, the kinds of, call them what you will, revivals, quickenings, awakenings that were happening in various parts of our culture. Really our movement in the PCA mm -hmm. came out of those kinds of awakenings that were happening all wow. over the place in our culture. We don't see that right now the way we were seeing it then or in the 70s. And it can be very discouraging for pastors, but it's always been a ministry of the resurrection of the dead. So be encouraged. That's just one way, Hunter, that I would say the theology of the confession can just go, oh yeah, it's not all on my shoulders. I, I don't have to fix all this by myself. All I have to be is faithful and I have to depend upon the Spirit. And uh, and I'm, I'm in the same boat with my brothers for the last 2,000 years. Yeah, I think the best response to that is amen. That's the last word for now. Thanks to you for joining us and listening today. You can reach us with comments or questions on Twitter or Facebook at Five Points Planting or by email at reformedplanting at gmail.com. See you all next time. Five Points Church Planting is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters.